This episode is brought to you by DNA Fit, providers of state-of-the-art genetic testing. Their services build a roadmap for your individualized health, fitness, and lifestyle goals by testing the genetic markers that make you unique. As a podcast listener, you get 30% off by going to dnafit.com and using the code PRIMALBLUEPRINT at checkout. Also brought to you by Primal Mayo. Made with pure avocado oil, organic cage-free eggs, rosemary extract, vinegar derived from non-GMO beets, and a dash of salt, you can turn any traditional dish into a superfood with just one serving. Healthy mayo, who knew? Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder, Mark Sisson. Special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, in conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Damage Control, Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, anti-aging supplement, available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. Welcome everyone to the podcast. Today we have a guest who is one of my favorite Malibu locals, Ted McDonald. Ted is the owner of Five Point Yoga Studio in Malibu, one of the best places to take yoga. Um, hi, Ted. How are you? I'm great. Thanks, Al. How are you doing? Good to have you. I want to. We're going to start off as to why you're here. This is going to be sort of a part one of a two-part segment because you are very new to the paleo primal way of living, and we're going to get into what led you there because it was a diagnosis that a lot of people are getting these days and a lot of athletes are getting. You're a yoga teacher, a fitness trainer, an endurance athlete, an entrepreneur. You do yoga retreats, which are really awesome, uh, adventureyogaretreats.com if anyone's interested, but we're going to talk in depth about that later. But let's talk about how you got to paleo. So lead us down the path of how you even got into yoga and endurance athletes to begin with. All right. Ready? I'm ready. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it can be a long story. No, um, but uh, so years ago, let's say 1996, as a matter of fact, I, uh, I was brought to my first yoga class. And I was an athlete growing up, played football, baseball, played lacrosse at UCLA, and did this film, actually. I kind of produced this independent feature, and I put my heart and soul into this project. And Nothing happened with it. It was sort of a classic bad story. and uh, <laughs> Classic and I, Hollywood failure. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> exactly. No, absolutely. And so I was just kind of down in the dumps. And, and I had a girlfriend who said, hey, I'm going to take you to this yoga class. And, and I thought, yeah, yoga. You know, Sting does yoga. Why not? Right? I'd seen Sting <laughs> done it. And I thought, oh, just check it out. Anyway, first class I did was with Brian Kest, actually. And I just fell in love. I, th- I thought, oh, my gosh, I, this is something that I could see myself loving forever. And I never really felt like that before except for creating and, and, and writing and, and acting and, and directing and doing that stuff, which, by the way, I write now, but I don't act or direct at all. So uh, <laughs> right. things change over time. But anyway, um, I... I just thought, wow, I could see myself doing this forever. Never thought I would teach. Cut to three years later, my teacher was doing his first teacher training. I thought, oh, sure, I can hold Warrior Two forever. Why not? Uh, <laughs> I'm good enough to teach. Sure, I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Why not learn a little bit more about the process? And so sure enough, I did that. And during that, during that workshop, I was offered a teaching job. And then that sort of grew. And now that same year, around 2000, I ha- I thought, you know, I've been doing this yoga stuff for a long time. I really love it. It's great. But I kind of miss my exercise. And by the way, I stopped doing everything except yoga. So I stopped going to the gym. I stopped lifting weights. I stopped running. I stopped doing anything because it just felt so good. And I felt like I really didn't need anything else. Until- yeah, and yoga is addictive like that. It's wonderful. And after a while, it's sometimes, you know, you realize, you know, I need to be doing something a little different, <laughs> just different. Right. Absolutely. And, and so I said, you know, I'm just going to run short distance a couple times a week, a few miles, three, four miles, 
couple times a week just to get a little cardio in. And, <laughs> and so <clears throat> I did that twice. And by the way, I was the first time I did it, I was sore for four days. <laughs> I can Ran imagine. Two miles, and I was sore for four days because my muscles hadn't done it for three years, right? Anyway, so did it again for two, uh, uh, two miles, and I was sore for three days. So I thought, oh, muscle memory, it's coming back, right? <laughs> and so then a week later, my friend suckered me into running a marathon. Only and a week, only like a couple of weeks into it. That's, a, yeah. that's unbelievable. <laughs> exactly. So I said, look, if, I'm so, if I can handle 10 miles, he suckered me into doing 10-mile training run. And he, he said, I said, if I can handle it, I feel like I'm not going to ruin my body, then I will, I'll do the marathon. So sure enough, five weeks later, you know, we had our hotel rooms down in San Diego. We were doing the rock and roll marathon. There was thousands of people. It was super fun. I couldn't believe it. There was this goal I had set for myself and I was training and, and then all of a sudden race day comes and it took me four and a half hours. Like I mean, it didn't matter to me. It didn't matter to me that I, who cares about the time? I wasn't really training for the time. So I just fell in love with the process of of racing and training, and I just loved setting a goal for myself, having something to look forward to, pushing myself physically to do it, and the yoga was the perfect complement because I could stretch myself out, I could relax my brain and my body at the same time sure. I you know, was recovering and I was pushing myself. So now I had this big yin and yang, right? I had this big yin and yang, however you want to say it, and uh, and so that was the beginning of my endurance career and I loved it so much that I thought man if 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 I can run marathons well maybe I can do a triathlon and and then I did the Malibu triathlon back in 2000 actually and that was my first triathlon and I fell in love with that and at the time Michael Epstein who puts on the Malibu triathlon has been for 30 plus years he or I think 30 years this year but he also used to put on these little adventure races so I thought, wow, let's do an adventure race. What else can I do? <laughs> All right. So now here's the thing. Now during this time, okay, so we'll get to like your experience of why you went low carb, but just give us a snapshot of like what was your belief system about training and eating? What right. was what were you adopting? You know, obviously you're like, All right, I'm gonna train for this ten K, then now we escalate to the the you know, marathon. Now it's the triathlon. So during this time I'm assuming you're either reading or you're being told things about how to properly train. What was your what was your mindset? What was your philosophy? So I pick up the, uh, 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 the triathlete's training Bible, right? And I, I'm like, oh, this, I, should, I should learn this, right? Eventually, I'll probably do an Ironman. <laughs> and, and by the way, the adventure races were 24-hour races. They were, they were, they, we did anywhere from a sprint, which was two to five hours, all the way up to 24 to 48-hour races. So it's I a never... hospital run. It's just a hospital run. Right. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> I never did the Eco Challenge or the Primal Quest, which were big four, five, six, seven day races, but the, my, my biggest was over 30 hours. That was a 24 to 48 hour race. Anyway, so I, I, I picked up the Triathletes Training Bible thinking that I'll learn something, and I went to the nutrition uh, chapter, and the first sentence in the nutrition chapter is, Welcome to the world of eating whatever you want. Oh, no. <laughs> and, uh, and the, that sounds great. I would be, I would join a triathlon right now if that were true. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, at that time I was like, sweet, this is fantastic. And the guy's like, I sat down on a Saturday night and I had a, you know, half gallon of ice cream and it's fine because I burned it off the next <laughs> And I thought, man, I, w I wouldn't do – now, I love ice cream. Don't get me sure. wrong. I'm, I'm the first one to, to go into a nice Talenti ice cream. But um, <laughs> peanut butter chocolate ice cream. Nice name drop. Yeah, yeah, me too. Exactly. I love that stuff. <laughs> exactly. Not now anyway, but in the old days, in the old days. Um, so anyway, I didn't really think much of it. The whole thing was and, – and carb loading was a thing. And so doing my races, you'd think about carb loading. But then I learned a little more and I thought, oh, yeah, this whole carb loading thing's kind of getting, getting old news. And, and, uh, and then I turned 40. And by the way, I'm 44 now. And when I turned 40, I'm very fit, do a bunch of runs, a bunch of marathons, just did the Boston Marathon, qualified for that, did Leadville 100-mile um, mountain bike race. So, you know, and I'm not winning any of these things, but I'm, I'm, I'm doing fairly well. And, and I enjoy it. That's the thing. I just love pushing myself. But I've constantly only thought about ever using 
carbohydrates as fuel. Sure. And so... So you're doing power gels. You're doing like all the classic stuff. Now, and are you also eating when you're not hungry? Are you also perpetually hungry? I mean, what? where were you at there? Just cycle of eating and fueling and burning? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, 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 you know, I, I pretty much graze during the day. On, on events, it's all very calculated. Sure. Because, you know, I want to have my, my electrolyte tablet, so, and then I want to have my gel, and I want to make sure that I stay ahead because so, I know I can only burn a certain amount. And this is all carbohydrate stuff. I mean, right. hydra- hydration is different, but anyway, so. So then what, it was kind of an accident that you discovered what happened was is basically you were diagnosed with insulin resistance not too long ago, and it was accidental how you came upon that diagnosis. Can you get into that day? Because I'm sure that was a, was a, a mind blower for you. <laughs> I mean, just a little bit of a shocker. I mean, yeah. you know, and we'll discuss more about insulin resistance a little bit later, but I, I'd like to hear about that. So I, at 40 years old, decided I'm 40 now. I should probably get some blood work done. I should probably, I feel pretty, in pretty great shape on the outside. I'm an 80-20 guy. My meals are good. I do steel-cut oatmeal and banana for breakfast. I'm, you know, salad, veggie salad. I eat fish and, and eggs, and, and so I'll have a nice dinner. But I'd always have some dessert or whatever. Anyway, so 40 years old, I thought, okay, I'm going to get some lab work done, get some blood work done. And my friend who's a doctor, she says, oh, hey, I have a, a relationship with this lab, and they really go in-depth into a lot of different a lot of different uh, things in, into your blood work, and they don't just look at the basic stuff that most doctors look at. I said, oh, hell, let's do it. Great, fantastic. Sure enough, it comes back, and she says, yeah, you have, she's like, there's nothing we really need to worry about right now, but there's definitely stuff we can change with some lifestyle, lifestyle shifts. I said, I'm thinking, okay. She said, well, you have uh, your uh, LDL, right? LDL, the bad cholesterol, is a little bit high, and she said that I have insulin resistance and a lot of inflammation in my system. Right. So I'm thinking, well, inflammation, okay, because I'm exercising on a regular basis, so my body's burning. It's you know, it's 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 I'm pushing myself, so I'm sore. So you would think that that's where that inflammation would come from. But thankfully, again, nothing big. But I'm thinking, man, insulin resistance is is pre-diabetes. That's right, and also so pro-inflammatory. You know, right. the, mo- the more excess insulin we have going on in our body, and I'll get into a little bit of that later for anyone listening who wants a snapshot of, you know, what insulin resistance is. But, but in general, that's what it is. It's an insulin high carb, de- insulin producing high carbohydrate usually diet, and someone like you can get it carbing up and being an athlete with uh, no, you know, minimal body fat and no weight problems. And then someone can get it sitting around eating ice cream who's obese. Right. It's, it, it's like not, you know, it's nonspecific. It's doing its job it's related to the carbs. Yeah, it's equal opportunity disease <laughs> and no one needs to get it. But um, a lot of athletes do as we've seen and we're seeing more and more of that. So anyway, sorry, continue the train a little bit into how you reacted and responded to that. Well, at first I looked and, I, and, and she, so she said, oh, yeah, it's risk of cardiovascular disease. You really have to start looking at your diet a little bit more. And I'm thinking, well, you know, I kind of snack on chips a little bit. So that's probably not good. But again, I'm thinking I'm, I'm 80, 20 or 85, 10, like most of my diet is really good. And then I, but here's the situation is in the morning, I would have my little pre drink for my, before my workout, whether it was a run or a bike ride. And then I come back from that, whether it's a 45 minute or an hour, an hour and a half or whatever. Typically, I wouldn't do anything, just hydration, if it was less than an hour during. But if it was more than an hour, then I'd start to maybe hour 15, then I'd start to go into the gel or the marathon. Obviously, I'm doing gels throughout. I don't want to eat anything but, but the gels. So then I come back and I do a recovery shake, not, uh, not a protein <laughs> shake, different, different, right? So, so recovery shake is basically carbohydrates and sugar and then the protein shake was different. So I would do the pre-workout, I would do the post-recovery, and then I would do my protein shake. So here we are in a span of, let's just say, an hour and 15 minutes, and I'm basically pumping in 100 grams of, of carbohydrates in my system. 
and 50 Just to start your day. Mm-hmm. That's even before I leave the house, right? Yeah, right. That's so amazing. It's, it's crazy. Now, <clears throat> there is uh, a test that they did. It's APOE, right? So they do APOP, they do LDLP, they do all these different things. And, and APOE is a genetic marker. And for me, I'm a 3-4. And according to the woman at the lab, now that gets a little technical, but you, you guys can feel free to Google it. Sure. But, um, <clears throat> and, and so I'm a 3-4, which means I actually don't really process carbs that well. Now, I know because I also work with a professional cycling team that, um, and there's an opportunity, my BMC racing team, I love these guys and they're doing very well this year. So uh, anyway. Yeah, aren't they related to the Tour de France somehow? Or Somehow, yeah, they won it in 2011. Sure. Oh yeah, there you uh, go. That's, that's something like that. A little that. bit of relation. Nice. Exactly, yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, so my Apple e-test, according to the well, first of all, just to go back to the cycling team. So I work with the cycling team, and I've talked to the doctors on the cycling team and the sports scientists on the cycling team, who are very, very knowledgeable guys, PhDs and MDs, all saying that the human body can essentially only process about fifty to sixty grams of carbohydrates in an hour. So what these Tour de France level guys are trying to do essentially is make sure that they have the maximum amount of carbohydrates in their system every hour on a on a race. So if they're doing three hours or four hours or five hours or six hours or seven hours, they want to take in 50 to 60 every hour so that they can burn that because that's where they're dealing with their fuel. Now, I look at this and I go, oh, okay, that's interesting. Well, so I talk to the lab and she says, because of my genetic marker, I really should only be having about 15 to 30 grams of carbohydrates per sitting. So, and I figure that's per hour because I'm not really taking in more in any given hour than per sitting. So anyway, that's basically less than half, half or less than what the normal person could do. Now, it's, there's a lot of conflicting science with all this stuff. But what I started to realize was, and you know, I've, you know Mark, Mark and I have met uh, a few times and yeah, Carrie. I was actually just texting Carrie before our podcast, and she said, "Give Ted my love." So yeah, uh, we're talking about Mark and Carrie Sisson <laughs> in Malibu, who know you and have taken your yoga class. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I've, I've known about Mark and 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 about his you know pioneering uh, ways, and 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 of course I subscribe to Mark's Daily Apple, and and so I'm checking out what he's doing, and you know I think more and more, and because there's a lot of vegan stuff going around and plant based stuff, and. I just could never get around to getting there uh, for for whatever reason. I don't because do, you're a human, <laughs> right? Because, yeah, uh, and so I do fish and eggs. That's my primary thing. I don't really do red meats or chicken or turkey, but I I feel fine. Like though, this is the, another thing that's really important. I think I had no physical signs of this whatsoever, and I'm fit guy, six feet, 170 pounds. And, you know, exercise. You're the pillar of health for most people. Seriously, you are what our modern day U.S. society would consider. Honestly, anyone can go check it out by looking at your website (laughs) and seeing a photo of you. But you are. You're this sort of pillar of health. Everyone looks to you, right? And then here you are getting a, you know, on your way to getting or developing and you're stopping in it in its tracks right now, but you're on your way to developing a disease that, again, fat, obese people who don't even put any effort towards their health get. And it's really, like you said, an equal opportunity. But this insulin, high insulin producing diet, which, you know, the standard American diet, really, you can't abide by that pyramid and not get insulin resistance. And then this whole new level of what's going on in endurance training and people talking about the lower carb way of managing athletics if you are beyond what normal people do. And there's a lot of people out there making this change because people like you and Timothy Noakes are becoming insulin resistant and getting a lot of metabolic issues. And here's the thing, you don't have any symptoms now or didn't then, but that high insulin producing diet would have led to a, you know, increase in cancer, thyroid issues, and possibly weight issues. You know, oh. you never know. Well, so the insulin resistance, so there's a couple of different things. My glucose level, fine. Insulin level, fine. It's the insulin resistance in my adipose tissue. Right. So here's the thing. Adipose tissue is fat tissue. 
One of the things I learned actually from uh, doctors Volek and Finney, who wrote The Art and Science of Low Carbohydrate Living and the book I'm currently reading, which is The Art and Science of Low Carbohydrate Performance, but Mark actually mentions them in that, uh, that, that workshop, actually. They're friends, apparently. And these guys are basically, as far as I know, you know low-carb uh, experts, absolutely. Pioneers, right, exactly. And so they're on 50 grams. But what I learned a day, a day, 50 grams a day. That's 50 grams total carbs a day. And I don't believe that they do the whole. So in the world of Atkins, there's this whole net carbs thing. And we don't do that in paleo primal world either, at least in the world of primal blueprint, where by you subtract the fiber in something to get a lower carb count, quote unquote. So that whole idea, I don't know if the guys you're reading even calculate that in. But in the primal blueprint, we just go for total carbs. We don't do any, you know, of that nickel and diming and mathematics on it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I get the feeling they don't. I haven't gotten right. any nickel and diming so far. <laughs> <laughs> Probably but, not. But it's a, it's, there's a great diagram in the book that shows that the human body can hold about 2,000 calories of carbohydrates at any given time. It can, an elite athlete has thirty to 40,000 calories of fat in their body. Now, you look at someone who's an elite athlete, I wouldn't consider myself elite, but pretty close, and I would say I would. that I would never say that I have thirty to forty thousand calories of fat. But here, are my friends who are on the the cycling team that are elite athletes, best in the world at what they do, and they have thirty to forty thousand calories of fat on their body. That's crazy. Now, here's the fascinating thing: because I'm a trail runner, and I love trail running, and I love being in the mountains, I discovered this guy Killian Jornet. Have you heard about Killian Jornet? I've heard the name, but go go and let us know. So he is this phenom kid, born in Spain. He became a world champion cross-country skier, skater. And in the off-season, he would run, and he'd essentially run uphill. He was born in the Pyrenees, so he was born in altitude. I think he just this year became world champ for Spain, national champ and world champion for Spain, I think the seventh time or sixth or seventh time. But anyway, so he's also this incredible runner, been on the cover of uh, outside magazine and trail runner magazine and, and by the way the new york times magazine did an article about him too and he's he's got this project called the summits of my life because he was racing and he was doing so well he was beating 100 mile and, and 100 mile ultra marathons he was beating guys by two hours and he will go run for four hours or five hours on berries he'll just have a few berries that's it he's a completely Fat adapted athlete, and by the way, and there's people that also just run on fat. You know, we'll just um, instead of the power gel, <laughs> you know, of a like a 30 gram shot of sugar, they do a shot of coconut oil or coconut butter. Right, you know? yeah. right. And so I looked at this guy a couple of years ago, and I started following him, and I thought, man, this is this is unbelievable. I don't think I could ever do that, but uh, you yeah, know, I don't think I could. So. Last year, the guy did what's called an FKT, fastest known time. So this is kind of a big thing among these mountaineers and trail runners and stuff. So he ran up Denali, Mount McKinley, and which is from 13,000 feet elevation in Alaska all the way up to, I don't know what it is, 22, 24,000 feet elevation, and then skied back down and set this FKT. He beat the guy who did it in 2013. By five hours. So the guys Wow, are that's a big margin of beating yeah. a guy. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, so he went up. It took him nine hours and 43 minutes to go up. And by the way, he had one bottle of water and he had one gel. So, and he probably so, partioned off. Exactly <laughs> right. Exactly yeah. right. He pro- probably took him three hours to have the gel. Right, right. right. He just took a little sip every now and then. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And so, but that's, to me, that's that's mind-blowing. So, and it's just because it's so ingrained in our heads. So here's my experience. I have across the street this wonderful 10 and a half mile run that typically I'd have my bowl of oatmeal, my banana, and then I'd have my pre-energizer workout, which, by the way, that adds up to about 70 grams of (laughs) carbohydrates. In a, in a span of 20 minutes. So already my pancreas is freaking out. 
because it just right. And every both. time, by the way, you know, just everyone listening to, you know, when we ingest any kind of carbohydrate or even actually our genes start to trigger the release of insulin before we even take that first bite, it's already in production. I mean, even watching cooking shows, which is crazy, can actually increase insulin. <laughs> Looking at a menu can do it. You know, our bodies are, then the saliva gets going and more insulin. So, you know, the people that are eating five, 10 meals a day or, or every hour taking a power gel, you're just basically shedding a hammer right down on, on your system. With yeah, the, it's, with, yeah. it's unbelievable, unbelievable. So anyway, I would do that, and then I would go for the run. And the run takes about two hours, a little less than two hours, about 10 and a half miles, 3,000 feet of climbing, a little less than two hours. And I would have a gel after about 45 minutes or an hour. Boom, it's 25 grams of carbs. And then that usually maybe another one at the end if I needed it for recovery. Because you also need carbs for recovery, so I think. <laughs> when you're a sugar burner, right? Yeah, well, if you're depleting and repleting and you're on that schedule, because when you go without it, your brain tells you, when you are glucose dependent, your brain tells you you're starving when you're not. You know, I mean, it's, it's like you can't help it. You, you need the gel when you're a sugar burner. It's unreal. It's unbelievable. So I, after I learn all this about my system and then I think, oh man, this is crazy. What am I going to do? I'm not going to be able to put out as much energy, as much effort. Well, maybe I'm going to have to just go a lot slower and figure out what I'm going to do. I'm thinking I'm going to lose speed in this case. So the next time I, once I realize all these labs and I make a full concentrated effort, which by the way, just so everyone knows, it was April 2013 that I took my first round of tests that I learned this. And I really, I took out my little Starbucks chai tea that probably has 50 grams of sugar in it. <laughs> so that was the only thing that I really changed. And then I kind of put it off and I put it off and I put it off. And then it was over a year later, it was July of 2014, that I took the tests again. And there were some changes, but not really that much. It was basically the same. And then I didn't really start. I'm in the midst, which is why this is part one of part two. But I'm in the middle of a, of a three-month test, essentially. This is, so I'm right now in about week eight. So Of experiencing low-carb living and trying to adjust your body to become a fat-adapted, which you think you might already be. Um, it's really interesting, that transition, I bet. Like, what what have you noticed? I mean, obviously, you know, we, we make mistakes as we go along. What kind of level of carbs are you at per day roughly at this point? Yeah, I would say that I, I'm, I'm for sure under 150, but I would say most days I try to be under 100. And I don't go yep. insane about it. What I do do is I try to have meals with no carbohydrates. So I don't do rice. I, I mean, I rarely did pasta before in a rare case. But right. I, I you used weren't to a do, huge grain eater. You had your oatmeal, but you weren't huge on it. Yeah, and I, and that's right. And I would have some quinoa, but now I'm no oatmeal. I'm no quinoa, no pasta bread, nothing like that. And so, oh, by the way, I you would do sweet potatoes, not regular potatoes. Haven't done those in the last eight weeks. So a lot of those things. And oh, by the way. Sugar, basically done. I mean, yeah. you know, that's that that was a big thing for me because I have a sweet tooth, and I and don't. You can reverse insulin resistance in 21 days. I mean, a month, according to Mark, and in general. I mean, it just mm -hmm. it's the truth. I mean, by by doing this, you can reverse it. So you're going to find out somewhat soon. I mean. I think people think it's sort of a sentence when they get insulin resistance. You knew better. You're already on the health. You're going to definitely research it, look into it. You're going to find a way out. But the people who just get told this by their doctor have no idea that this is reversible. No one needs to go down the path on diabetes. It's absolutely reversible and manageable through carbohydrate management. And it was you, actually, who, when you sent me the uh, the the Marxist and Timothy Noakes podcast I listened to that plus I was I think at that time I had already gotten the the book from uh, the low, the art and science of low carb living there's also another book called the blood code which is fascinating because it talks about all the different levels and what they mean actually in fact the that that book is it's great but he says don't you, there's no need to to read this book unless you have your blood work. <laughs> so sure, get, sure, your, sure. get your blood work first and then I'm going to explain to you what this all means and how to change it. So that's another resource. But um, anyway, it was so, so the experience for me was so, – so going on this 10-mile run, 
and then needing the fuel before, the fuel during, and then using the fuel after, to finally thinking, okay, now I need to I need to buckle down because my wife and I would have these conversations and she's like, look, we need to work on this because I don't want to be married to a guy who's going to die of uh, diabetes. <laughs> I don't want to have to inject my husband with insulin. Yes, no. nobody wants to even uh, have this. It's again, it's it's something just people don't realize is really reversible through diet and not even exercise. You don't even have to exercise a lick and you can reverse this through diet, um, through carbohydrate management. So you're about at 150 or a little bit lower and I'm sure you're adjusting based on your activity. Did you have any transitional symptoms? Sometimes I myself had a tough transition from sugar burner to fat adaption because I was a heavy sugar burner. I was on the hot yoga train, which is (laughs) just the same every day, just the same thing. You don't teach hot yoga, but I, I, left your studio to go do hot yoga and basically got fatter and sicker and more insulin resistant um, because I was just overdoing it and constantly then replenishing with carbs and on this up and down. And then finally I went primal with my activity, but also really looked at the carb level and, and et cetera. And it's, it's been great ever since. I myself know personally, I don't do well on over a hundred carbs a day. That's just me. I really don't. Right. That's, right. that's what I've learned. And it's shocking at what I did have. Like you said, the banana, then you have a bowl of raspberries at some point. This is all healthy stuff, right? Supposedly. You know, supposedly. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's really no different than drinking a Coca-Cola as far as our insulin is concerned. Yeah. So what were your, did you have any symptoms? Did you have any like tough transitions? Oh, absolutely. So it, it's, and one of the, one of the things I read is that it takes about two to three weeks. So, totally. so that's what I was, one of the things I read. And so I thought, okay, I'm just going to have to suffer through this. So back to my 10 and a half mile run, I went back out once I committed, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I went out with no breakfast. And I took a gel with me because I thought, okay, just in case I need to pull out a gel, I'm going to take it. So <laughs> just in I, case I'm about to pass out and I need a shot. Exactly. And about uh, hour 15, I tried to wait as long as I could. This, this particular run goes up about 1,700 feet and then down and there's a little lump and then it goes up another 1,000 feet. And then it goes all the way down. So at the second big climb of a thousand feet, I, I I was able to hold out that long, about an hour, fifteen, hour, twenty minutes. And then I was like, I just can't go on anymore. I gotta have my gel. Boom. So I had the gel. But again, this was my first effort. This was my first time making a commitment to going out on empty. It takes willpower. It actually really does take willpower to oh, not succumb effort. to your brain telling you you have to eat because it's it's trickery. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, and then just another quick story. A couple of years ago on the uh, cycling team when I was at, at their training camp teaching yoga to them, there was a nutritionist who was there, this guy who's a, um, an Irish national, uh, he's an ultra marathoner on the Irish national team. And he said, hey, Ted, this was the first time I actually ever went out on empty. He goes, we're going to go out on empty. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, we're going to go two-hour run, and you're not going to have any breakfast. I said, you're crazy. That was my first experience, actually, that I ever did it. And at first, I was out 45 minutes in. Boom, my mind says, you need fuel. Sure. And that was only in my head. And that's the fascinating thing, I think, about this is we're so – controlled by those thoughts in our mind. We think that when the thought comes in, that it's, that's, that's the truth. Well, and here's the thing, though. In that world, and here's what's really interesting about insulin resistance uh, and the whole equal opportunity aspect of it, is that, so uh, Gary Tubbs, who wrote Why We Get Fat, uh, he's another popular guy within the low-carb community and in general just health. So, you know, we always assume, like, gluttony and sloth are... are basically the causes of obesity. And they're really like the symptoms because at the end of the day, when you're on this sugar burning train, your, your brain, it's almost like it's not anyone's fault, right? It's not your fault that you were, you didn't know better than to be in the sugar. But when you are a sugar burner, you can't control what your brain is telling you, right? Your brain is like, Hey man, you've been giving me glucose and this is what I need. It's like a crack addict. There's no, and until you cut it off and start giving it, you know, broccoli or whatever you would give a recovering crack addict, you know, it, it, it doesn't stop that train. That takes willpower because 
You know, so I feel for people that are obese or who are, because it's really a food addiction, unless it's caused by something else. Anyone who's got a food addiction, it's like you can't help have it. And you had it too. You just didn't have it in a gluttony sloth kind of way, but you had it in a false conventional wisdom way. Well, and another thing that I learned in all of this research in the human experiment that I am (laughs) is that one-third of diabetics are thin diabetics. Right, which is also very dangerous because the oxidative damage and all of the inflammation is still going on. It's just not apparent. And when we associate fat with unhealthy, right? And here you are again, like a poster boy, yoga studio owner, adventurer. You're like the pillar of health visually, but at the core, you've got a problem going on because you are a carb-dependent sugar burner. I mean, no longer, but you just discovered it. And it's crazy, right? It's crazy to think that You know, I too, I gave myself hypothyroidism and a whole slew of other problems because (laughs) I was a sugar burner who was on that train of over-exercising and and depletion of like the low-fat train, thinking low-fat was what was, I was just a victim of false conventional wisdom that we all believed in. And again, like you love that podcast with Timothy Noakes and I did too. Because this is a guy that wrote the book on carving up, and right. he got type 2 diabetes beyond insulin resistance. Exactly. And I think he's only at, what, like 20 carbs a day or something? So, yes. I mean... Something crazy now, yeah. Yeah. Hi, listeners. It's Brad Kearns to tell you about our partner on the podcast, dnafit.com. Mark and I both went through the DNA Fit process and received our reports and were quite interested to read the results. Some of them confirmed the healthy lifestyle behaviors that we've been doing, but I was also really surprised to learn that I was predominantly a strength and power-oriented athlete rather than endurance, which has been my lifelong background. Other things on the report that are quite interesting are your sensitivity to carbohydrates, your need for vitamin D. This is a snapshot of what makes you tick, and it'll just help you inform the best practices to undergo as you're trying to dial in your exercise patterns and your diet. And you can go to dnafit.com and get a 30% discount on their comprehensive package just for listening to the podcast. And all you have to do to get that 30% discount is enter the discount code PRIMALBLUEPRINT. So where are you now? You're eight weeks. When are you going to get tested again? Like, what's your plan? So the plan is 12 weeks. I'll get tested again. But just, just to go back to the, um, the symptoms that I had oh, and, the, yes. and, and the struggle of the change. So I, I did my 10 and a half mile run, had the one gel. I went out again. Uh, so I went out again on empty and I had the one gel because I needed it. Then I went out again a week later and I said, okay, I'm going to suffer through this. I know I have to go, go suffer through, but I'm going to – so I have a little green tea, by the way. I have a little green tea in the morning. And that's my, that's my breakfast. And then I run out, do my little run, takes me you know, a little under two hours. So here's the interesting thing. My performance did not change when I did not have that fuel that I thought I needed. I didn't take my banana and my pre-energizer and my, my you know, pre-workout and my oatmeal. I didn't do it. And I s- still felt great. You can look at both runs on Strava (laughs) and they are within a minute of each other. So two times, I mean three times, one time with it, one time with one gel, no breakfast, second time, no breakfast, nothing. Now, by the way, I'll do a shake after and my shake now does not consist of banana, blueberries, (laughs) strawberries, almond milk, and protein powder. Now it's my protein powder, water, and some almond milk. That's it. And nice. so, right. So, so that's my recovery. And then, of course, I'll have food. I'll have my omelet with avocados and, and uh, you know, I'll have my fats and, and moderate protein and fat, low carb, high fat, moderate protein. That's my plan now. So, you know, that plan is also the country of Sweden's plan, which is really great. They're coming around and they actually are exactly of that mindset. I hope one day you, me, we're all a part of Mark and everyone else in the low carb community of really getting the message out there that this needs to end because type 2 diabetes is happening to the best of us, the ones that are striving for health. Yeah, it's amazing. It's it's incredibly amazing. Now, I will say, and my wife can attest to this, that there were times that I would come home in the middle of the day and I would be like, I am so hungry. I need to eat a freaking horse. 
And I, I had, it was crazy how my blood sugar had this like download and sure I could be snacking and all this kind of stuff, but there was definitely times where I just wanted to freak out and, and, and kill someone. Well, th- and let me ask you this too. So when you were a sugar burner and you were on that train, I'm sure there were times when you got caught somewhere and you couldn't have food for several hours and you probably had those sugar meltdowns, right? The, the hypoglycemic, just mm-hmm. low blood sugar cranky, whatever, like you, like, give me food now or I'm going to just murder somebody. And and then now we think about there's someone actually that got primal certified and was interested not in coaching people how to go paleo. Well, a little bit, they were interested in using it in their psychotherapy practice because of how it does affect our moods. And so I'm sure you're probably what a more approachable, approachable, even keeled person now that you're fat adapted or (laughs) Well, we'll get your absolutely. wife on. We'll have her. We'll interview exactly. her next time. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so, so after that was really two or three weeks. Which so now, and that was three weeks ago. So just to catch everyone up is that I since I did those three runs. The, it was a week after I was out of town, and then I did it. I did. I came back. And I did it a fifteen miler, three thousand feet of climbing with my friend who just finished the Disneyland marathon at 306. So he's fast, not wow. you know, not super super elite fat, but 306 is a fast marathon. And and I was totally fine. 3 hours, no breakfast, no fuel. I had some hydration. I had a little some hydration, so I had a little bit of a hydration drink. That was it. The whole entire time. So, and I felt good, strong the whole way, a little bit sore toward the end, but that makes sense because I had gone two weeks without doing anything like that. So it was that, that makes sense. So anyway, at what this about point, your shifts in hunger? So obviously you were hungrier more and you probably ate more often because that's what you thought you should be. Once people get fat adapted, I mean, your level of exercise is still high, but it's often the case where we find you need less and less calories, less and less food overall because what you're eating is so dense and you've got this higher fat content. What, have you noticed that changes in appetite or uh, amounts of food or satiation? I mean, can you talk a little bit about moving to higher fat and low carb there? Yeah, I've noticed it mostly between the hours of 5 a.m. So I'm, I wake up typically 5.15, 5.30. That's just how my body works. And I don't have breakfast and I will, depending on what kind of exercise I do, if I'm just doing yoga, I won't have anything until 10 o'clock, you know, or maybe I'll have an omelet or something. But if I do do a run or something like that, I'll do that protein shake after and that will be about nine o'clock. So I'll go for the first three, four hours of the day with basically tea. That's some green tea. Right, right. And then maybe coffee if I'm having it. But I typically, I don't like to drink coffee during the day. I do drink a little coffee. I have it maybe a few times a week. But I have it in the afternoon because I don't like this, the intense, I can feel the intense uh, spike with the caffeine. So that's why I stick with tea in the morning. But um, It would be interesting to see, or I don't know what your experience would be. I'm not an endurance athlete or a big runner, but I'm wondering, you know, what it would be like, the experience of having a spoonful of fat of some kind before a long run or a long, you know, not, I mean, granted, I think fasting is a great way to do that too, but I wonder what your endurance athlete friends think about that or, you know what I mean? Trying a little fat to fuel the brain or if, if, if even needed, but maybe on a longer run, that would be something you'd want to incorporate. I don't know what your thoughts. Absolutely. So, so, and so, and that, so by the way, so we're just talking about these runs that are taking me two hours, which I feel like I can do no problem, but I'm in the midst of training for the Leadville 100 mountain bike race again, which took me 10 and a half hours last year. And now my goal this year is to come in sub nine. And I have the Catalina Grand Fondo, which is a mountain bike race in May, followed by Big Bear 100K, followed by Tahoe 100K, followed by uh, Leadville again. And so I have to plan for these longer endurance races that are over two, three. Now I'm getting into four, five, six, nine, ten hours. So that's my next step. So my next step is to figure out what I can do along the way. Now, I also found out from a friend that who's fat adapted, who basically did Leadville, took him 10 hours or whatever, and sipped 
honey water. Figured out for him, he's totally fat adapted, and all he had to do was take little sips every so often just of, of a diluted honey yeah. water. Nice. So, yeah, and that's, that's amazing. So, and again, back to Killian Jornet, who's going 49 hours and 40 minutes on 24 grams of carbohydrates that you're right, he probably sipped over the course of three hours and some water. So, for me, that's the goal. Not only, not only because I think that that's going to help my performance, but because it's going to save my life. Yeah, it is saving your life currently, which is so great. And also, it's interesting you're going full force from this diagnosis to, hey, I'm not going to let this stop my dreams here athletically, and I'm going to find a way to do it. You are at the helm and really sort of on the front lines of endurance athletes and athletes in general who are even turning over to this. And I hope through you as well, you know, spreading the word to help save others' lives. Or at the very least, if someone's like you and they are that adventure racer and, you know, competitive athlete, go get tested. You know, get tested and find out. You may be the pillar of health in the mirror and by your actions, but they could also be wrong without you knowing. Yeah. Absolutely, without a doubt, and you—that's you, the thing, because you just don't know. You, 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 there's one thing to look; it's one thing to feel; it's another thing to know. I want to talk about some of the adventures that you do. You actually run a few adventure yoga retreats. You ran one recently to Mammoth, but you have one coming up in Machu Picchu. For mm-hmm. anyone interested, that's adventureyogaretreats.com. Um, I want to hear about Machu Picchu. So this sounds like something <laughs> I would definitely sign up for. I mean, this sounds great. Um, you've been doing this for a while now. Tell us about it. Yeah, it's been about 10 years, and it actually goes back to sort of the beginning when I when I learned how to teach yoga. I was doing that, and the, the general sort of path for a yoga teacher is you get a class, and then that class grows, and maybe you do a workshop, and then you'll lead a retreat. And for me, based in Los Angeles, and uh, the retreats were sort of Santa Ynez, uh, Santa Barbara, that kind of thing, and then eventually maybe you take a week in Costa Rica or a week in Mexico or something like that. So, But at the same time I was building my yoga teaching career, I was also in, having an incredible time with my endurance athletic career. And I'm also a snowboarder, was a snowboarder. I can't believe I'm saying that now. It's 19 years of snowboarding <laughs> <laughs> and I'm finally back on skis. It's crazy, but I do love it. Uh, anyway. You were a scraper and then you came over to the right side of things. <laughs> I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, a diehard, I'm a diehard skier and I have family in like the Swiss Alps. So, you know, snowboarding is kind of like, I'd have to hide it probably yeah. if I were going to do it. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But um, so anyway, so I thought, oh, this is sort of a bummer here. I have this this peaceful yoga namaste uh, <laughs> side of my life. And then I have this endurance, competitive, athletic, push myself as much as I can. But then I got this harebrained idea. I thought, wait a second, maybe I'm the guy to bring these two worlds together. Because guess what? There is a lot of skiers out there. There's a lot of people out there that understand this whole yoga thing and think it could possibly help them, but they're not really going to go to yoga class because it's weird and they're doing all kinds of pretzely moves and it's probably too spiritual from India. <laughs> right? yeah. so, uh, so that's what happens. And then, But because of the popularity of it, it's now people are doing it more and they're like, oh yeah, wow, this, this, I don't need to join some crazy cult and, and it's okay and actually it helps me and I feel better. <laughs> and it's athletic, and people are like, "Oh yeah, this is actually athleticism." Oh my and it's god, finest! <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. So my first idea was to do a ski snowboard yoga retreat up to Mammoth, and we did that back in 2004. Was the first one, and then I, it was a fantastic trip. And six months later, I had a group of 20 people skiing, uh, surfing in Costa Rica. We did a surf and yoga trip to Costa Rica. And since then, I've led groups all over the world, to Fiji, to Africa, to Peru, to France, Italy, all over the place, and uh, Mexico. And you've got a luxury yoga one, though, coming up at Machu Picchu, June 6th through the 13th of this year, 2015. That's right. And um, have you been to Machu Picchu before? This will be my sixth or seventh trip down there yeah oh so, my god yeah. wow it wow. is it is uh, one of the most amazing places in the world I, the, i've been to costa rica a bunch as well and i always refer to costa rica as mother nature's womb because it's 
moist and it's warm and it's nurturing the land. And at the same time, or actually the opposite side, is Machu Picchu is 10,000 feet, 9,000, whatever, but you're at the Sacred Valley. Cusco's 12,000 feet elevation. And this is kind of out of this world. It's super mystical and it's magical. And, and you, you get there and you walk in and you see it for the first time and it's just it's awe-inspiring at its finest. And you're just completely silent. You just feel the energy of this land and you think, wait a second, how did these Incas create this whole thing here at the top of this mountain? It's un- it's really unbelievable. It is beautiful, and it's really something like since I was a kid, whenever I saw photos, it was like, oh, I want to go there because it is so mystical. Oh, absolutely, and it's it's really quite an amazing thing. And and the, the trip this time and, and probably going forward is done in, in conjunction with the Go campaign and and Scott Pfeiffer, who's a, a dear friend, runs this organization that helps children's projects throughout the world. So not only do you get to go and experience what you would normally do if you went with your family to travel. You're going to go to Cusco. You're going to go to Pisac. You're going to go to Machu Picchu. You're going to have these things. But guess what? We're going to do some yoga. We're going to eat really healthy. And we're going to go visit some of the projects that Scott's nonprofit helps. And I donate. Oh, nice. Yeah, I donate part of the proceeds of the trip to uh, Scott as well. And, and he helps. And we, for instance, last year we did the same trip and we drove 45 minutes up this crazy hill to a school that Scott had, uh, purchased a greenhouse for. So now they can educate kids about how to grow their own vegetables and cook them and, and do all that kind of stuff. So he's doing amazing work. I'm, I'm, I'm honored to be, uh, doing this as a, as a partner with him. So, so it's kind of a, a trip that kind of covers, you know, our own needs to travel and to see one of the most amazing places in the world and also to give back to the local community because I think our world is so abundant. The Western world is so abundant that just to scrape a little off and to help those in need is a very important thing. So, Oh, I love that. And everybody, if you're interested, adventureyogaretreats.com. And if you're ever in Malibu and want to check out the local schedule for your yoga studio, that's five point yoga.com and that's the number five point yoga.com i want to ask you a bit so i love your yoga classes they are different i think more people respond to you because you know you were joking earlier that you know a lot of people initially were turned off to yoga because they thought ah, it's too hippy dippy or spiritual or you know not enough uh not hard enough or it's too this or too that and there's all these preconceived notions and in your class uh you really you do have all those elements. However, there's also this really nice level of athleticism, you know, <laughs> that you kind of throw in there that's a little different. And can you just kind of tell everyone a little bit about that? Because, I mean, obviously that's something you know about yourself clearly if I'm bringing it up, you know, from experiencing it. And I think people really like that because it's, you know, it's not just a classic standard. And you're also your soundtracks are always amazing. I mean, oh, I'm, I wish I, I, you know what I wish I, you know, honestly, I didn't tell you this, but. I always wish in your class I could have my iPhone there so I could Shazam, Shazam. like every single. I used to come after ten after class and be like, "What's that song? What's that song?" Or I'd be typing in the lyrics. I'd catch like uh, one verse and I'd be like home googling it afterwards. So the music you incorporate to your vinyasa classes are amazing. Um, but tell me about you switch it up. You I mean obviously you, had a, you have a different angle when approaching yoga. Yeah. Well, first of all, you can you can have all of my music. It's all on Spotify. So you can just oh, nice. <laughs> follow me on Spotify. <laughs> totally and you will. Can have all those things, yeah. Um, but uh, so the thing for me about about teaching is I teach uh, with popular music. It's kind of a it's kind of an arc. So we start off just kind of getting centered and and coming into our own body and mind and 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 sort of taking the outer world or leaving the outer world behind, and then it starts to get a little bit quicker and faster and, and, and we warm up a bit. And then I, I try to challenge people. I think that we learn most through challenges. And so I, I, I try to offer a fun, light way through the breath and movement to challenge people. And, and hopefully, hopefully they get that. And then at the end, it's, you get this nice kind of, ah, so they, so they, they get the chance to, Ultimately, the reason I started the studio was just because I wanted to provide people with the opportunity to just get out of their daily lives. We have so much going on. We have so many things going on with 
kids and jobs and, and careers and, and, and phones and people and, and we're getting tugged in 17 different directions and it's nice to just leave it all behind, go to a place where you can feel safe, you can move your body a bit and feel that you're alive. And even though you may have all this stuff, life happens. People die. It's, I mean, it's, you know, people get sick. We lose jobs. We, we have breakups. All these things happen. They're all part of life. And it's never what happens to us in life. It's always how we deal with what happens to us in life. And I think that's the one thing that yoga does best is that we get to deal with situations that are tough. So I try to give people tough poses and, you do. and sequences. <laughs> and right? Achieved. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that you can learn how to deal with that in a safe environment so that when, excuse my French, but when the you-know-what shit hits the fan, you can yeah. deal with it in life. Well, and here's the thing about your yoga studio, though, that is different from others. I've been all over L.A. to a lot of different yoga studios and all some great teachers, but... You have such there's such a comfortable, welcoming vibe at your yoga studio in every way, whether that's just the aesthetics, the visual, great view of the mountain in the background. But the vibe is so welcoming. There's all levels, even in some of your advanced classes. Um, I feel comfortable there. You know, there's some other yoga studios where it seems competitive, which is so off-base yoga, yeah. <laughs> you know, or or I don't know, uh, people I see pushing themselves in ways they shouldn't and injuring themselves because you know they're feeling some sort of pressure, whether it's self-manufactured or a general vibe of the people in the class. But, you know, whether it's your students, I think it's really the, it's partially your students, but it's the vibe you create, you know? And absolutely. so I would absolutely do a yoga retreat with you in five, so I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, if I lived closer to your yoga studio now, I'd be a regular. Um <laughs> But I, I definitely just love that because, you know, people are kind of embarrassed to start and go to yoga because they feel like some sort of internal pressure to get into a position. Right, right. Well, I mean, just to do another little shameless plug, I'm definitely building a little YouTube channel. Oh, great. So that's uh, it's YouTube.com slash Teddy McDonald. And that's M-C-D-O-N-A-L-D. And then, the, and then the number one, right? So it's Teddy McDonald, the number one, YouTube.com. But just to give people, because the thing is, I think even if you just start by yourself in your, in your home a little bit, you get used to some of the movements and that intimidating factor. I, I cannot tell you how many people I've met in the course of my yoga practicing career that have said, oh, yeah, well, I'm just afraid because everybody seems to know what they're doing. And then like you're saying – is you go into these classes that are super competitive and that's worse for the person who's coming in who's kind yeah. of a little shy and doesn't really want to know and then they're immediately turned off by this wonderful practice that really frankly has has changed my life and and has helped me continue to be as conscious and aware and healthy uh, I mean it's you know we're talking about the insulin resistance stuff but physically I don't really get many injuries I've had probably three injuries in the last 20 years and so that's because I'm flexible. I remember racing against like Team Balance Bar and Team Red Bull and these guys would be cramping up and freaking out. I'm like, huh, hmm, Yeah, because they're not used to that level that you have on a regular basis of stretching out those muscles. You have the advantage actually as an endurance athlete. Uh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Well, we're going to talk to you soon, aren't we? So you're going to come back at some point. We're going to review maybe the new blood work and then also just talk to you about your experience as you go down this road of low-carb endurance living. And um, anything else you'd like to share with the audience before we go? No, I just – I just uh, I, my plan is that I think it's uh, 12 weeks. So I'll make my appointment sometime from eight weeks now, probably in about a month or so. So maybe mid-April is when, I, when I'll plan to get my blood work done. And then I'll see. We'll see if these numbers go down. I, I can't imagine they're not from what everyone is telling me. And, uh, and then if I just – If not, we'll do some live paleo coaching on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> right, the right. No, right. no, I'm kidding. You should right. be good with all your research. I mean I think that's the thing, right? You just have to start – learning. And when you start learning, you realize how much you don't know and how much is out there, particularly in the paleo, which is just naturally low carb. But in that world, it's really possible to be an athlete and still maintain that level of performance and not have to jam yourself with a high insulin producing diet. Right. So Absolutely. we look Absolutely. forward to it. Thanks so yeah. much. And again, for everyone that wants to find more about Ted, adventureyogaretreats.com or the YouTube channel. It's Teddy McDonald One, right? Mm -hmm. And also fivepointyoga.com 
the number five pointyoga.com if you're interested in taking a class in Malibu with them. And um, great talking to you, Ted. We'll see you soon. Thanks so much, Al. It's been a pleasure. And yeah, we'll see you and talk to you soon. In a supermarket full of mayo options, how do you know which one to pick? Well, there's an easy answer. The one that tastes good and is good for you. But here's the problem. Almost all store-bought mayonnaise contains industrial seed oils or eggs raised from hens treated with added hormones and antibiotics. Not exactly the best recipe for good health. Luckily, there's a new mayo creating a ton of buzz. It's called Primal Kitchen Mayo and contains only the finest superfood ingredients, including all-natural avocado oil and organic cage-free eggs. So no more trading good health for great taste. Go to primalblueprint.com today and pick up a three-pack. As an added bonus while supplies last, enter the code FREEBOOK at checkout to receive a free copy of Mark Sisson's Healthy Sauces, Dressings, and Toppings Cookbook with any three-pack mayo order.